Jay, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Thank you. That's the first hurdle clear, isn't it? Should all be should all be clean sailing from here. Technology's wonderful when it works. Correct. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jay, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. You've, you've got a fascinating experience to share with us, of course, but uh, how do you describe who you are and what, what keeps you interested to people who might not be aware? Well, I'm a retired uh, federal agent. I worked undercover for 27 years, starting in 1987. I retired in 2014, I believe. Um, um, and I've over that uh, career, I had over 500 undercover operations uh, of all different types, sizes, shapes, you name it. Wow. So, the, I mean, the one that appears to have got the most attention is you infiltrating the Hells Angels. And that, to me, sounds absolutely terrifying. Uh, I, I This is an alien world to me. Uh, as you may, may guess, uh, within minutes of talking to me. So I just, I suppose, just from a psychological perspective, is, is there a certain type of individual that steps up and volunteers for what is quite clearly an incredibly risky job? I, I think the best undercover agents, from my experience over the people I know and, and the brotherhood and sisterhood that's formed there, uh, the common denominator is that they're audacious. They... Uh, that they're risk aggressive people. I, I'm not sure that they necessarily myself included in this characterization um, have a good balance of uh, risk. They're, they're, they're audacious. They're aggressive. Is there, is there a thrill aspect to this for you? Oh my goodness. That's a good question. Um, I, I would like to defend myself and say, no, that there's not that I had a job to do and that, um, you know, like for me, I consider myself uh, very much a common man who was placed in some uncommon situations. Uh, but to say that there weren't times that were thrilling or that uh, you seek that adrenaline, uh, the thrill of the challenge, I think that would be an unfair statement to make as well. I, of course, yes. Okay, so maybe for those who aren't initiated, who are the uh, Hells Angels? How, how do you describe them? Well, the Hells Angels are an international organized crime syndicate, although they deny that. Um, uh, they're classified as a gang, although they deny that. They call themselves a club. And um, they're, you name it, and they are the location, and they are there. There's a Hells Angels saying that a sun, the sun never sets on a Hells Angels patch. So they are on every continent. Um, uh, close to 500 charters on, like I said, everywhere you can imagine, uh, there's probably a Hells Angels presence. Tell me a little bit about the culture then across these these charters. Uh, what kind of uh, tenants do they live by? What kind of codes are apparent? Yeah, you know, they have rules and they have bylaws. Um, uh, they promote themselves as being these fun-loving rascals who just love riding motorcycles together, who don't want to live by society's rules. But once you get under the wire and, and see behind the curtain, they're full of rules and they're full of protocols. And um, there's every type of person you can imagine. There's there's people who are very much down on their luck, who uh, don't really have an, an income source to people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, you know, with legitimate employment. Um there's people that I cross paths with, hundreds of them over the course of my uh, investigation, 
Um, and it's not unlike any other element of society. You put a group of people together, there's people you like, there's people you don't care for. Um, there's people I believe that liked me, at least while I was still uh, in an undercover role. And there was people that didn't like me. So what kind of crime would you find is, is prominent within these groups? What kind of things would they, were they known for? Well, uh, any aspect of violent crime is, you know, the, 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 the people I investigated weren't necessarily book smart, weren't necessarily uh, uh, college educated type people, but they had PhDs in violence and intimidation. Uh, they were really good at it. So, you know, our investigation here in Arizona, it kicked off mainly behind two events. Uh, the first being that uh, they murdered an innocent woman, uh, lured her to uh, a clubhouse. Uh, she got out of line and she was beaten uh, to an unconscious state. And then they stuffed her in the back of a car and drove her out in the desert outside of Phoenix and cut her head off. Uh, mm. That was one of the events that inspired our investigation. Uh, another was... A, a riot that took place at the Harris Casino in Laughlin, Nevada. And that uh, was a, uh, a riot between the Hells Angels and one of their rival gangs, the Mongols, which was uh, exactly as I described it, a riot, a beating, uh, shooting, stabbings, people died, all under the uh, witness and observation of hundreds of close circuit uh, cameras that were in this casino. So those, uh, in addition to a lot of other events, but those were the two main events that inspired um, our investigation and attempt to infiltrate them. So when you're, I mean, how are you chosen to infiltrate? Is this something you volunteer for? Is it, does it come to you as a proposition or does it come to you as an order? Um, like all the above, um, <laughs> maybe with the exception of the order. Um, I, I don't know that you can order anyone. I don't know any agency that would order anyone to work undercover. It was, it was voluntary for that part. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that, that type of investigation. Um, I was the right guy at the right time at the right place. Um, or potentially if you want to look at it as the wrong guy at the wrong time at the wrong place to, to make a run at these guys. I had, uh, 15 years of undercover experience behind me. Um, I bought everything from pea shooters to shoulder launched rockets from, uh, street dope, dime bags to cartel level dope from, um, homemade PVC pipe bombs to servo activated C4 remote control IEDs. I had done murder for hire cases and home invasion investigations. And, and so I had, uh, quite a bit of undercover experience. When the opportunity came up, I was requested to participate in the investigation. And, you know, that's, uh, that, that's a challenge that, that, that I wanted to take on. I mean, I hope this, I mean, if it's too personal, feel free to let me know, but were you in a position where you had close family or significant others at the time where you had to make a calculation, uh, it, whether it was worth this? Well, I, I did. I was married. I had kids at the time. Um, I'd been married and, and, and my kids had grown up with me as an undercover agent. Um, and that was probably, uh, in hindsight now, one of my biggest regrets, maybe one of my biggest failings is that uh, I made and was making decisions for myself. I was, I was making selfish decisions. I wasn't considering the impact 
that those decisions had on my wife and my kids. And um, over the course of my career, I put a huge amount of battle damage on my family uh, behind very selfish, you know, regretfully very selfish decisions. So, I mean, so you, you have to infiltrate this incredibly notoriously violent criminal gang. And obviously you're going to need some sort of backstory. What, what was yours? What, how are you going in? Yeah, I had a very well established cover, uh, a false persona that I lived under. Um, I was uh, portrayed myself to be a debt collector, uh, a gun runner. Um, and then that persona, the way I carried myself and, and being involved in those types of uh, background stories led the Hells Angels to believe that I was also doing uh, murder for hires, that I was a contract killer. So you blend all that together. Um, and it gave me at least an opportunity, a chance to have some success. That's fascinating to me. I suppose the only frame of reference I, I can really muster is that of an acting gig. Obviously, it's that it's that times a million. Obviously, so obviously you have the, this backstory. There's a lot of details that you must have to memorize in case you're questioned. But this this phrase you just used moments ago of carrying yourself that's that's interesting to me. Did you really? inhabit a persona in, in the way you moved and talked? And is this something you had to force yourself to remember to do? Or did it just become something you lived eventually? Well, your, your actor analogy is a good one, because you are acting, you're pretending to be someone that you're not. Um, but, you know, I had done it for so long that it became very natural for me to play that role. Um, you know, there was an event, I, I had been gone for an extended period of time from home, and, and I walked in the door and instantly my family was offended by me. And my wife said, you can't be gone for an extended period of time and then walk in the door and treat us like you treat people on the street. And then in my self-defense, I said, like, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. I have to be on all the time. People who do what I do and treat it as a hobby end up dead. And then her response to that was, when you come to this house, you better install a dimmer switch and turn down that attitude. And if you can't, don't come back. Took that light switch analogy straight from you there. Beautiful piece of work. Um, so, I mean, this sounds frightening to me, I'm going to be honest. Being around people who are violent, they're already probably suspicious of newcomers, I would imagine. And just one false move, one word out of place is going to get you potentially killed. I mean, did were there any close calls, any any situations you really had to talk yourself out of? Well, yeah, it does take time. Uh, you don't uh, knock on the Hells Angels door and ask to fill out an application. Uh, that's <laughs> not how it works. You have to spend time with them. Um, everything you do is scrutinized, like what you say and how you say it, what you wear, uh, what car you drive, what motorcycle you ride, where you live what the condition of where you live looks like. Um, everything is being scrutinized because that is how, not just the Hells Angels, that is how anybody in the criminal community survives, through paranoia. They're, they're, they're uniquely paranoid. That's how they stay out of jail. They, they, don't, um, they don't stay out of jail by trusting everybody that crosses their path. They start off, you start off with a position of mistrust and you have to overcome that. Did you purposely at any time cast some manufactured suspicion on other people to kind of keep the heat off you? 
Well, I'll tell you what I did. I mean, that's a very good question. What I did and I, and I made it part of my routine is that um, I performed what we call street theater, which is I would invite uh, members of the Hells Angels to see me involved in a drug transaction, involved in a, a gun transaction. Uh, they saw me beat people up. Um, they were present when I did debt collections. The street theater part of it is that what they didn't know is that the person that I was dealing with, the adversary in those situations, was many times another undercover cop who was playing a role and was fulfilling his part of the script. So what we like to say is that street theater is inaccurate conclusions based on accurate observations. So they would accurately see me in criminal uh, activity. They would inaccurately conclude that I was a drug dealer, a gun runner, a debt collector, whatever type of scenario I could set up and allow them to be a witness to. Okay, that's smart, I suppose. Um, another thing that must be hugely challenging in all this is if you haven't got enough worries on top of that, is this the, how instrumental large motorcycles are to this gang and how they, you know, they're, they're, they're part of the iconography, they're part of the passion, they travel everywhere. That's, it's almost a show of strength on these bikes. And how, how was your knowledge on motorbikes before you joined? I mean, how did you get into that in, in a convincing way? It, it, I was way behind the power curve. I'll tell you that I could ride a little bit, but I couldn't ride like those guys. Some of those guys uh, are riding motorcycles before they can walk. Um, <laughs> and, and, the, and the things they can do on a motorcycle, uh, like I wouldn't even uh, try to attempt to do. Um, so um, like that was part of the bluff, trying to keep up and trying to like learn on the fly um, amidst and amongst people who are watching every move that you make. I suppose as well, a lot of us, most of us, thankfully have no real concept of real world violence. Our only experience of violence usually comes from, you know, movies, television, and it does not play out like that at all in real life. It's um, far more, um, you know, compelling, sinister, impactful, I would imagine. And this is something you must have experienced perhaps before you infiltrated um, Hell's Angels with the job you did and, and drawing. And is this something you ever get used to? Uh, well, I think that some of the uh, the violence, like personal exposure to it, personal participation in it is one thing. Uh, when you see it being uh, inflicted on other people or impacted on other people, that's that's a, a, a big motivator for for lawmen. That's, you know, the, the violence is a part of the job dealing with it. But when you see it happening to people, especially people that don't have it coming, then that's, you know, a motivator. Um I got hired as a rookie agent on a Monday. Four days later, I was taken hostage and shot. Um, I had a bullet. Uh, I was shot point blank in the back. The bullet went through my lung. It narrowly missed my heart. It exited my chest. So after four days on the job, I was laying in the dirt and garbage of a trailer park with blood coming out of my chest like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. So violence uh, and, and the violent aspects to the job were something that I was introduced to, like within my first week of employment. You know, I got shot and I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. God, you're going to have to tell me what happened there. Now you've, you've told me you've been shot. How, how did that transpire? Well, I was a rookie agent and I was assigned to be about as far away from the operation as I possibly could be. 
uh, the people that I was working with, my training officers were trying to protect me. Um, they went to make an arrest. The, uh, the subject of the arrest ran and uh, I violated all the rules and made all the rookie mistakes you can make. And I chased the, uh, the suspect down and, and he was in hiding and I walked past him and he jumped out behind me and, and had me and held the gun to my head. And um, by the time the other agents responded, you know, it, it turned it, like the shooting actually took place inside of a vehicle. And it was, if, if you can imagine your worst Hollywood shootout, it was like that, but times a million. It was 10 seconds of a lead and glass storm uh, that ended up with, with me bleeding out and the suspect being killed. So I think it's fair to say we've all had bad days at work, but that is next level. And I, I think you would have been forgiven for saying, you know what, I'm not sure this is for me. Maybe I'll do something else. What, what made you persevere? Well, I, you know, I, th th that is a good point and I don't disagree with it, but it was the exact opposite for me. Um, it, th that bad day at work was actually a great day at work for me. Um, I knew what I wanted to do. I had survived a bullet passing through my chest and it empowered me. It made me feel bulletproof. I knew that I'd made mistakes and I just wanted a chance to come back and, and try again and see if I could do it the right way uh, without getting hurt or having anybody else around me hurt. So, I mean, this, this constant exposure to violence would, would change anyone. And you mentioned there how, how this caused friction with your family and, and significant others and things like that. I mean, is there an aspect of perhaps PTSD playing out in some aspects of your life? Uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. Uh, I, th I think that I have like probably all kinds of mental and emotional uh, uh, battle damage that, that, that I have endured, um, some that I've put on my family. Um, you know, another story uh, as, as it relates to my family, over the years when I would come home from these assignments um, and I'd get ready to get back on the road and go take a new one, my son, who was a, a little boy at the time, uh, eight years old, would run out in the yard and grab me a rock. And he'd say, dad, don't leave yet. And he'd put a little stone in my hand. And so over the years, I'd collected these stones and I kept one with me all the time. I believed that these good luck charms were helping keep me alive. And I had one in my pocket. I had them in the, the saddlebags of my motorcycle, my undercover car, my undercover house. I even started handing them out to my partners. And I said, <laughs> I don't know what blessing is being put on these rocks, but but hang on to them because they work. So towards the end of the Hells Angels case, I was getting ready to leave. It was, we were getting ready to wrap things up. My son goes through his same routine, runs out. Don't leave yet, dad. He gives me a rock. And I was trying to, I was a 40 year old father at that point, trying to comfort, you know, an eight year old son. And I told him, you know, I'm almost done. And all those things that I've been missing out on with you, I will do as soon as I'm finished with this. We'll ride bikes and play catch and we'll wrestle and go to the movies and read books and do all those things. And the reason why is because of all these good luck charms you've given me. And this little boy is standing in front of me and his tears start running down his cheeks. And he's like, dad, those weren't good luck charms and you shouldn't have given them to anybody else. They were just for you. They were for you to put in your pocket. And every time you thought someone was going to hurt you, you could put your hand in there and touch it. And that would be like, that would be like me being there to help you fight back. 
When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free-from-baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Oh, these Syrian pumpkin seeds from Coro are amazing. I have them on my cheese and toast every morning. You've been getting into them, Jen? Yes, and all the health benefits it brings. <laughs> Look at that. There's quite a lot. Quite a lot of Lashings of them. Right. Pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. That is what I had done to my family through my professional decisions. Um, it took an eight-year-old boy to teach his 40-year-old father what my job was. It wasn't to be a super cop. It wasn't to be, you know, a master undercover uh, operator. It wasn't to infiltrate the Hells Angels. It was to be a, a good father and raise uh, my kids. And I was failing at that miserably. Wow, that's quite powerful, isn't it? I mean, it's the innocent of chill, the, you know, the child. Sometimes they, they see things in a way, you know, free of all the, the web and, and, you know, entanglement adults have in their life. I mean, well, you know, I will say this. Um, over the course of my life, over the course of my career, I've done a million things wrong. I've made a million mistakes that I'm ashamed of, that I regret. Um, but God and my wife and my kids have given me a million and one second chances to try again and, and see if I can get it right. So I'm hopefully doing a better job in the second half of my life of, uh, of treating people the way they deserve to be treated than I did in the first half. That's excellent news and, and good to hear. But I suppose more on that first half, because it, it does remain incredibly fascinating to people. So, I, I mean, you infiltrate the Hells Angels. You're, you're, I suppose there, your trusted people have accepted you. What what sort of things are expected of you when you first join? Are, are there any initiations? Are there any tests? Well, I think that there's, uh, well, I know that there's a lot of myths around the Hells Angels. Um, oh, well, you're going to have to kill someone before you can become a member of the Hells Angels. You, <clears throat> excuse me, have to use drugs before, <coughs> excuse me, you have to use drugs before you become a member of the Hells Angels. Those are myths. Um, you, you make your way and you earn your patch through time. Uh, and, and the objective is to gain trust. And as you gain trust, you gain loyalty. And then in some cases, you know, you actually build love. And then the hard part emotionally for anybody that does that is that after you've built someone's trust and gained their loyalty and gained their love, you ultimately betray that because you, you, you write reports and you testify against the criminal uh, or about the criminal acts that you've witnessed. And you, you can never undercover out the human factor. That, that, like I, I never mocked people that I arrested. I never like celebrated successful investigations uh, in the presence of people I investigated because I was often a part of and present for the very worst day of their life.
Yeah, I mean, that, I think, Jay, I think, oh, you're still there, sorry, the screen temporarily froze, can you hear me okay? Yeah, no, you flashed off and on, but I'm still here. Excellent news. Okay, so I suppose one of the things people must be really curious about, and you must have been asked lots of times, is this idea of taking part in crime yourself, a legal activity, because there must have been a certain amount of that that was expected uh, from you. So I suppose people are probably curious what what amount of that is actually sanctioned uh, in your role uh, officially, and what kind of situation did you find yourself in in terms of committing acts of crime? Well, I, I'll tell you this. When I first came on the job, I had uh, three rules for myself. They were not the agency's rules. They were not what I learned in training. They were my personal rules that that I was going to adhere to. I was not going to watch someone be murdered in my presence and try to stay in role. I was not going to watch a woman be raped and try to stay in character. And I was not going to watch a kid be beaten and stay in character. If those, if those events were took place in my presence or were taking place in my presence, I had an obligation to come out of role, announce myself as a law enforcement officer and, and do what I could to prevent those things from happening. And, and anything else beyond that, I, I've, I just assumed like believed that I was going to figure it out on the fly. Were there any suspicions brought about you by, by anyone? Was there people who were particularly difficult to win over? Yeah, there were, there were people that, that didn't like me, that didn't trust me, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't really get them to believe in me. Um, there were times where my cover was uh, potentially compromised. Um, and that's, you know, that's a difficult situation to be in when your cover's compromised and people that you know that are violent, that are murderers, are holding a gun to your head and asking you questions about things that you said or did years in advance um, and making sure that everything lines up and, and what you're saying now dovetails with what you might have told them a year or two ago. Um, so, th- th- I mean, that's that's a treacherous situation. And that's, you know, that comes, handling that comes with with experience um, and, and, and developing tradecraft. And, uh, a lot of times you're, you're trying to portray yourself being comfortable when you're very uncomfortable. Um, and so I, I don't know that there's any like one specific technique or trick to it, but over time, and if you've done it long enough and you've been in those situations long enough and survived them enough times, um, your confidence rises. And, and and with confidence comes comfort. That's interesting. So, I mean, in terms of um, a routine, that the clubhouse would pay, play a major role in the culture as well. And you were obviously, you spent time in there. You were, you were welcome there. What, would, what were the day-to-day goings on? What was the culture like? What were the activities that you would see? What kind of things would they discuss? Is this some sort of big boys club? Is it a bit more serious than that where they'd plan and scheme? What, what was the culture? Well, you know, everything you can imagine takes place in the in the clubhouse uh, from the, the simplest, most mundane activities, uh, guys hanging out, socializing, shooting pool, having cocktails. You know, there's usually drugs present, not always um, up to, you know, like I told you the story earlier of Cynthia Garcia, who uh, showed up at a Hells Angels party and said the wrong thing, was uh, beaten uh, to the ground, beaten unconscious. And then 
you know, she made a, a terrible, tragic mistake. She insulted the Hells Angels, which is mistake one. She insulted the Hells Angels within their house, their clubhouse, which is big mistake two. And she paid the price for it. Like they believe that those types of insults warranted her being wrapped in a piece of carpeting, stuffed in the back of a car, driven to the desert outside of Phoenix, and then stabbed nearly 30 times and having her head cut off. Um, so you're dealing with people who, like, especially in the Hells Angels, that name, that center patch on their vest, which they call the death head, that is their religion. They will, they suffer and sacrifice for that and for the loyalty behind that, and they will die for that. So it seems like there's a huge honor culture uh, at, the, at the center of this, for sure. And there must be many pitfalls you could fall into. Did you come close to transgressing any of these at, at the time? The, the mistakes you look back now, which make you cringe a little bit? Well, you know, I, you have to be lucky as well as good to survive in what I did for as long as I did. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I don't, I don't take that for granted. I, I know that I had God's hand on my shoulder um, throughout my career because there was numerous occasions that I can look back on and say that I probably should not have survived that without God's presence uh, with me. And, you know, that lifestyle, there are elements to it that's sexy and that's glamorous and that's intriguing. Uh, not every single day that I spent with the hell's angels or every single minute was, was dangerous or unenjoyable. I, I mean, there was elements to it that yes, I did enjoy, but I never lost sight of whose team I was on. I had a job to do, which was to investigate violent crime. Um, they had a job to do, which was not be caught. Did you, I mean, were you ever put in a situation where you had to um, take drugs in order to keep your cover? And if so, I mean, I can imagine that makes it incredibly difficult from a mental point of view to stay focused. Well, th th that's uh, a good question, a fair question, a, a common question. Um, I had uh, tradecraft and I had techniques that I could use to uh, avoid that, Um there's two very uh, routine methods that are used by defense attorneys to defend against undercover infiltrations. Uh, one is entrapment, that uh, an undercover and a government agent um, enticed the, the, the suspect uh, with, in a way that would cause them to do something they wouldn't normally do. So those are decisions that you uh, those are situations that you have to think about when you're making choices, you know, like you need to make sure that you're not entrapping, entrapping your suspects. The other one, which relates to your question is, uh, outrageous government conduct where, uh, an undercover agent acts so crazy and so outrageous in his role that he ultimately, or she becomes worse than the person that's being prosecuted. And so- <laughs> Um, that, that, like you can't do that. Um, now that, that you've flipped the script, if you do that, if you become so out of control in your role that you become worse than the people that you're making uh, criminal charges against. Okay. So, um, I mean, you're in this situation, you're in the belly of the beast. It could go wrong at 
any moment. Did the agency have any sort of exit plan for you, any sort of emergency strategy in terms of getting you out of there? What What do you do if you find out all of a sudden your cover's been blown? Well, uh, in real time, you're trying to you talk your way through that. And, and I've been in that situation a couple times where you're trying to talk your way through it and survive it. Um, one thing, and it's very obvious, I, I don't probably don't need to say it, but I think it's worth saying. If, if you're being challenged, if you're being confronted, if you've got someone holding a gun to your head, and if you're talking and you're communicating, you have a chance um, because they haven't shot you. They haven't hurt you. They haven't uh, tortured you. Um, so, so something that you're saying is working and they are believing. Um, and so, you know, like, like we, we train for that. We train for situations, but you really can never train for them. You really can't recreate like a situation like that in a practical exercise when you know that even if you fail, you're still going to escape that event. Um, that there's, there, there's really no way to train for it. You just are, are you're, you're, you're trying to survive. It's survival instincts and, um, you know, there's been plenty of examples and stories out there where undercover uh, operatives have not survived that those types of situations. So at the start of the conversation, you said that the Hells Angels really deal in, in violence in terms of crime. Uh, who, what kind of people would they target for violence and for why? Well, it's uh, th there's two main elements and th these are not unique to the hell's angels they're um uh common in the criminal community money and territory and one equals the other the amount of territory that you control the amount of real estate that you own um, allows you to conduct criminal activity within the borders of the parameters of whatever your territory is so they're constantly trying to expand they're constantly trying to push into enemy territory so they can take over criminal operations and expand their network and expand their, their influence and their platform. Um, and then it, like everything's money driven. So uh, in the crime world, um, the hell's angels or really nobody is just out there shooting people just to shoot them, killing people just to kill them. There's some motivation behind that whether it be a threat to their money, a threat to uh, their existence, someone's going to inform on them, an undercover agent has infiltrated them. Um, so like, are there crazy people out there who are just shooting people to, to shoot them that, you know what, man, that's really bad business. So what, what's the hierarchy then? And how, how did you manage to get your way and who, who brings you into the fold? Who has the authority to do that? I started at the very bottom of the ladder. I was the bottom man on the totem pole. I, I started off as just an associate, um, someone who was who was exposed. I was exposing myself to members of the gang, trying to develop friendships, trying to develop contacts. Um, once you do that, you're invited to hang around, which is an official title in biker land. It's a hang around. And, and, and it's just that you are hanging around the gang and you are uh, finding out, deciding if club life is for you, and the members are deciding if they want to elevate your status. So from a hangaround, you become a prospect. And a prospect is uh, exactly that. It's a prospective member. So you're subject to all the rules of the gang, all the protocols, 
Uh, you do all the dirty work. You're the step and fetch. And that's your truly your test drive period where uh, the members of your charter are deciding whether you are worthy of being a member. And then after your prospect phase is done, um, it never is really done, uh, you're voted on. And the members of your charter will vote, yes, uh, we believe this person has proved themselves and is worthy of being a member of our gang, or no, they haven't. And they either get rid of you or you continue to prospect until you can win them over. That's interesting. And how do you play that from a personal perspective? You obviously have the goal of infiltrating this group, but do you play it in a way that you hope you'll be picked? Um, or do you actually subtly campaign in a way? Are you proactive in trying to get in the gang? Or do you just hope that, you know, if you spend enough time doing the right things, you will be invited? Yeah, I think all the above. I think you're trying to impress people. You're trying to build friendships, loyalty, trust, love, all those things we previously discussed. Um, when you're given assignments, you're trying to perform well through them. Um, in, um, in biker land, uh, those are called mud checks. And they're, it's, it's simply that. Um, can you hold your mud when you're put in a stressful or perilous situation? And so those can come simply. They can be, how do you act, you know, if a fight breaks out? Uh, are you willing to deliver contraband? Um, like, like, how far are you willing to go? And then in those situations, um, how do you react and act? Uh, one of the one of the big ones for me was uh, I was called to my uh, charter's clubhouse and I was sent from Phoenix, the Phoenix area, to Las Vegas uh, with instructions to commit a murder on some other bikers that were in Las Vegas without permission. Um, and I was told, we're going to watch you. And if you don't shoot them, we are going to shoot you. And so I was able to get a hold of uh, my case agent and told him the situation I was in as I was traveling. My case agent detained uh, the intended victims of, of the assassination. But in the eyes of the Hells Angels, I was there. I went where I was told to go. And, I, and, and from their perspective, I was ready to take care of business and handle uh, what I was presented with and, and fulfill my instructions. Uh, they didn't know. That, that I had circumvented the actual arrival of the intended victims. But in the eyes of the Hells Angels, you know, my actions were, were, were heroic. Wow. I mean, that, they put you in a situation there, obviously, where it's, you know, it's your life or theirs, isn't it? And trying to find that third way and not blow your cover, I can imagine that was incredibly stressful. I mean, what, what was your last day in the Hells Angels like? What, what happened for you to come out of that? Were there any significant, I, I mean, I hope you don't mind me using the word victories in terms of convictions, dis, dismant, you know, uh, disbanding groups, things like that? Well, I'll tell you, our, our case ended in a very interesting and unique way. Um, when I first started interacting with the Hells Angels, uh, and they were at war with another gang uh, on the West Coast uh, by the name of the Mongols, I asked the leadership, uh, what am I supposed to do if I cross paths with a Mongol? What are my instructions? It was very clear. Uh, your job is to kill them. And so I like held that information in my back pocket for uh, two years. And as the case was winding down, I went to the Hells Angels and told them that I had become aware of a Mongol that was in Mexico 
and that was making threats to the Hells Angels, and that I requested permission to go down to Mexico and kill this Mongol. Um, that proposal was was embraced. I, I was given the gun to do the murder with. I was given the instructions on how to do the murder, how to dispose of the evidence. Um, Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favorite financial app, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. And so I went out in the desert and I dug a shallow grave and I found this Mongol and I duct taped him at his wrists and his ankles and beat him with a baseball bat and put him face down in a shallow grave and executed him exactly as I was told. Uh, took pictures of it, took evidence of the murder back to the Hells Angels, uh, presented it to him. Um, what they did not realize is that the entire scheme was a giant street theater. It was a giant scam. Um, the, the victim of my murder was a member of my task force, and it was entirely fabricated using uh, blood and guts from a butcher shop. And it was a gigantic hoax uh, that I went and delivered evidence of a murder back to murderers. And at that point, uh, the members of my charter uh, put a Hells Angels vest on me and said, you know, you've, you've shown that you have what it takes to be a Hells Angel. You took care of business. Um, you know, welcome, welcome to the club. Welcome to the gang. You're a Hells Angel now. Wow. So, I mean, in terms, I mean, just keeping with the iconography about the, the, you know, the colors they wear, these big bikes, you think most criminal organizations would want to keep a low profile, blend, blend in, if you will. Do they, do they in, in almost invite more heat than they usually would by the fact of their, their colors and what they wear and, you know, how easily noticeable they are in crowds? Well, they're, they're very proud. Uh, they're proud of who they are. They're proud of uh, the organization that they belong to, uh, so much so that they display it. They, you, you, you typically don't see uh, gang members in, in at least in other aspects of organized crime that are as brazen as the biker community is. Um, you know, in 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 traditional street gangs, you, you you can you see it a little bit. You know, Crips, Bloods. You see red. You see blue. Um, Traditional organized crime, La Cosa Nostra, you know, those guys aren't uh, wearing 
suits that say uh, the mob on the back uh, with their with their name sewn on the front of their of their of their vest. Um, so it's 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 a unique uh, criminal organization. And and the Hell's Angels, I mean, they're Americana. They are America's export to the world of organized crime. I mean, in terms of iconography and the colors, I suppose tattoo tattoos play a big part in that as well. Were you ever required to get tattooed? Do you have Hell's Angels tattoos? I and I've got a lot of tattoos. I've got a I've 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 got quite a bit. My arms are covered. My chest is covered. My back. Um, I will say this: I never got a tattoo because I had to. I never got a tattoo um, for the job. Um, I was buying guns and drugs and bombs, uh, well before I ever had any tattoos. I was, I was successful in my, in my job before I had any tattoos, but I, I did use the tattoos that I have. They helped my credibility. They, 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 they helped my appearance because I, I, I blended in, uh, more easily and more commonly with the people that I was investigating. Wow. So in terms of these people you're investigating and, uh, you know, the Hells Angels specifically, um, was there any point when you left that any of these people got to realize who you were? Did you ever see, you know, did you ever meet any of them again as uh, a member of the agency? Well, you know, to, to go back just a second, which is interesting, I'm uh, like, I'm trying to have my conversation with you, but I'm looking at some of the comments in the, sure, in the scroll bar. Um, and there's one, I, and, and I believe it's... Um, related to the last story I told about fabricating the murder. And it says that is so close to being entrapment. Um, an element of entrapment is that you cannot coerce or you cannot encourage someone to commit a crime that they are not predisposed to do. You can't make uh, whatever the, the, the profit or the benefit of whatever scheme that you're involved in so attractive to them that they quit. They can't say no. When when we fabricated this murder, like we were delivering evidence of the murder to murderers. They were predisposed to commit murders. We were actually, I gave them a scenario and then they gave me the instructions on how to execute the murder. So they were, they were firsthand participants in it. It just turned out that they got tricked. That's a good answer. Thanks for the question, Fred. Um, I think, what was I asking you? I was just asking you whether or not these people, uh, after when all was said and done and you'd, you'd come out of the gang, did they ever get to see you as the member of the agency? Did you ever see these people again? I did. Um, it, it was, it was a pretty rough exit when, when my, uh, when my true persona was revealed through the court documents and through court proceedings. And when uh, the person that they believed to be uh, Jay Bird, Jay Davis, the gun runner, the hitman, the debt collector, when they found out that that Jay Bird was actually Jay Dobbins, a federal agent, um, you can imagine what came next. Um, death threats, violence threats, uh, threats against my family, against my wife, against my kids, uh, murder contracts. Uh, the Hells Angels were holding a murder contract on me. They they farmed a murder contract on me to the MS-13, to the Aryan Brotherhood through the prison system. Um, a murder contract had reached uh, an L.A. street gang uh, on me. Threats to, uh, you know, torture and, and kidnap my kids. And um, in the summer of 2008, my house was burned to the ground um, by arsonists. So uh, there, there, there is and there was a price to pay. 
Yeah, I mean, I thought it was I mean, that was going to be my next question because you're somebody who you, you're obviously comfortable with speaking about this publicly, if comfortable is the right word, and you, you're obviously you're showing your face and speaking very openly about the things you've done. And the you know the Hell's Angels, I assume, are, are still a thing in 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 in, in, a, in, a, in a capacity. Uh, does I mean why why continue to talk about it publicly, knowing the risks? Um, well, I will say this to, uh, to answer part of your question is that as, as hard as we worked and as hard as we tried, um, like my infiltration was nothing but a speed bump in the history of the Hells Angels. Um, slowed them down for a bit maybe, but they ran right over the top of me um, and kept going. They're bigger and stronger now than they were uh, when I was investigating them. Um, uh, why do I discuss it? I just, I, I have a story to tell. I, I, I tell it in, I, I tell it truthfully. Um, I don't embellish it. I don't undersell it. Um, uh, there's, there's tells angels that I still have uh, contact with, um, that, um, uh, I like have like m- maybe a loose relationship with, um, there's some that, you know, will never forgive me. Um, I, I don't expect them to, uh, they were betrayed by me. Uh, anybody that's ever been betrayed knows like how bad that feels and how humiliating and frustrating that is. Um, but I'm not out uh, like soliciting opportunities to tell this story, like just for a show like this. Like I didn't call you guys and say like, Hey, will you interview me and let me tell my story? Like, uh, like, like I was approached, you know, by your program. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is fascinating to people. And like you say, you have, you have a story to tell. This is, this is a world other people have got no concept of, I know there's obviously the risk factor uh, and the psychology behind it. And I I suppose, I mean, one of the questions in the chat is probably one of the most common ones you've had uh, at the Ray J's asked your worst, scariest moment. I think people, people would be very interested to hear the, hear about that. Well, you know, um, we touched on it earlier. My, my cover was, was being challenged and I had some, some very violent, wicked people, uh, playing 20 questions with me with a gun to my head. Um, that's, you know, that's tough. What I did is referenced all the history that I had built prior to that challenge and said, think about how long you've known me. Think about, you know, the, the assaults you've seen me a part of, the drug deals you've seen me a part of, the gun deals, the time we've spent together, um, the debt collections, um, wherever you're getting your information from, you need to challenge that person, not me, because you're being fed bad information. Um, and that, you know, I, I was able to escape that situation. The, the bluffed, fabricated murder, that was... That was a very dangerous play to make. It was a very risky play to make. It's when we talked, I talked earlier about being audacious um, because um, man, if they didn't believe that, if they didn't accept that um, the consequences could have been, you know, dire and instantaneous. So that's that, you know, that's part of the risk assessment that, you know, maybe I uh, didn't have the best risk assessment now in hindsight when I think about it. Um, I just, I had a job to do. I did it the best I could, you know, touching on an earlier answer. Um, I'm not the bad guy here. 
Like I wasn't the one that was like selling drugs. I wasn't the one that was committing murders and, and committing violence. I was investigating it. Whether you like that or not, whether you like how I did it or the technique of undercover work or whether you think that's unethical or immoral is beside the point. I had a job to do. I did it the very best I could do it. There was days when I made mistakes. There was days when I failed. Uh, there was days that, that I regret. I wish I could do them over and do it better. But I went and I did a job. And when I, when I came on and became a lawman, I, I felt like it was my job, my responsibility to stand up for good and innocent people who just wanted to live a safe life and take a stand on their behalf against predators who were trying to disrupt that. So if, if you, whether you agree or disagree with that, that's what, what my mentality was. Yeah, sure. And how long were you undercover in the Hells Angels in total? Uh, that case was two years. It ran from 2001 to 2003. So this is two years of your life in some of the most stressful and dangerous situations one can imagine. Uh, you said, you know, you had a family, you had children at, at the time. And, and it, you know, it's awful to hear you describe your actions as a, a speed bump in the, the progress of Hell's Angels. So, so it sort of leads to the question of whether you, in your own mind, consider this worth it. Was this worth two years of your life going through this, you know, tremendously stressful and dangerous scenario? That, that, that's such a good question. And it's, it's a really tough answer. Um, if, 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 if I don't investigate them and not just me, when I say I like law enforcement, if we don't investigate crimes because it's dangerous or because it's treacherous, um, then, then who's going to do it? Then, then we allow criminals to run with impunity, knowing that there's no one out there checking them, no one out there challenging them. The, the threat and the fact that covert operations are in place, just like the threat and the fact that wiretaps are in place and surveillance is in place, those things hopefully help balance and, and feed into the paranoia of the criminal community. Um, does it stop them from doing what they do? It doesn't. It obviously doesn't. Um, like I said, the Hells Angels, like, like Jay Dobbins, and, and my efforts to investigate them in the history of the Hells Angels, in the 75-year history of that gang, are insignificant. They don't care about me. They don't, they, they you, you know, the question of like, well, aren't you taking a risk telling this story, um, putting your face out there? They know who I am. They know how to find me. They don't care about me. They're bored with me. <laughs> I find it very hard to believe anyone could be. You know what? They've just found someone new to hate more than they hate me. So, I mean, in terms of this is how you spend the majority, how you spent the majority of your time, these high risk scenarios, it takes a certain type of person, a rare kind of person. How do you then fit back into the, the normality of life? How do you come down from that sort of thing and just settle for the day to day normality that most of us have to deal with? You know, it, it took me a long time. I, I wish that I could really tell you a hero story. I, I wish my, I, I personally wish my story was a hero story and it's not um, I, like I'm full of regret 
I'm, I'm, I, I, I made humiliating decisions. I, I did things wrong. I wasn't a very good husband uh, uh, to my wife. I wasn't a very good father to my kids. Um, I regret that. Um, I, the, I, the, there's no pride or satisfaction in saying that to an open audience. There's people watching this and listening to this who I don't know. They're forming their opinions of me. And, and I'm not being very flattering on myself. Um, so I say, like, like, would you do it again? It goes back to what I said earlier. If not me, then who? Who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna do this? Who's going to investigate them? Now, if I had to do it over again, would I do it better? Would I do it cleaner? Would I avoid the uh, battle damage I put on my family um, and on myself to some extent? Uh, yeah, but, but I believed in my job. I believed in what I was doing and the purpose I had, and I just did it the best I could every day, win or lose. Has anyone ever said to you that you may be a little too hard on yourself given the pressure you were under? Um, yeah. Um, I've heard that before. I just, I don't agree with it because like I, I, I have a standard that, that I believe in that I fell short of many times. And, um, it's hard to, it's hard to get past that. It's, it's, I'm not a person that makes excuses or lays blame. So, uh, no one held a gun to my head and said, you have to go work this case. We are forcing you to work on the hell's angels. If you don't take this case, you're fired. Or you're not going to get paid, man. I would have, I would have done my job, and I would have worked these cases for free if I didn't have bills to pay. I loved what I was doing. I believed in in the mission of investigation of violent crime, and so would I do it again? Um, I would. I would just do it better now, knowing in hindsight where my mistakes were. So, I mean, obviously you can't go back and do it again, but it, would you do it now if there was an opportunity and you were needed and you were, you were offered a, a, another job to infiltrate a, a similarly, you know, dangerous and criminal gang? Is that something you'd consider? Oh, uh, you know what? It's that's like that hypothetical theoretical question. Um, like, so like the, the, the fake hero in me would say like, of course, let me stand up and go do some more good. Uh, the reality of it is, is I would never be asked to do that. That, that, that's, that, that's not a, a practical question. And, um, it's easy to say, yes, I would go do amazing work for you when you know that the, the, the honest question, the honest request would never come in. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair how do you how do you that's want a wine? fake hero answer that would yeah. be a fake hero answer <laughs> yeah, to, to sure. answer it the way i might want to or that would sound good would be a fake hero answer you saw right through that question jay i'll, I'll give you that um what what do you do to unwind then how, how do you spend your free time if you don't mind me asking um you know what i coached high school football i played football in college i coached high school football i got a lot of uh, enjoyment out of that um it's it's a it's a much different life but a lot of the things still apply uh, across the board that there's a lot of similarities like doing your best putting your best effort in being prepared um uh, a, a lot of uh, cross reference um and then the the fact you know the ability to interact with young people um i i get i i just get a lot of uh enjoyment out of that I, like i'm i'm not i know i'm not a great football coach i'm not even convinced i'm a good football coach but I love being around my players. 
I love being around those kids. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've done that. And, um, I actually lead, um, a pretty boring, mundane, um, uninteresting life right now. Yeah, I think it's fair to say you've more than earned that. Uh, so there's lots of love for you in the comments from what I can see as well. People have really enjoyed hearing hearing from you and, um, you know, learning about what you did. Like I say, it's so alien to, the, to most of us and, and fascinating That's at the same time. I'll tell you what's funny is like, so I'm looking at some of these comments and and uh, most of them are, are pretty kind. Um, you know, most of them are, are, are nice, middle of the road, kind comments. Uh, usually when I do something like this, the comments are popping up are like, I wish you were dead. Uh, you should be dead. Why aren't you murdered? If this was me, I would have murdered you. You're a rat. Um, oh, the you know, but if, if you do what I do for a living or, or did for a living, though, you, not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Um, not everybody's going to um, respect or admire uh, what you tried to do. Um, I, I understand that as well. I'm not trying to convince anybody to like me or dislike me. I'm just telling as truthfully as I can the story of my experiences. That's definitely come across, uh, Jane. I've, I've loved speaking to you. I feel like I could speak to you for another five hours or so. Um, is there anything uh, you want to point people towards before I let you get back to your day? Where, where can people find more of, uh, of your, your work? Well, you know what? Um, like I have a website. It's just jdobbins.com. I've written a couple books. But, you know, to be honest with you, like I don't participate in these interviews trying to like use it as an opportunity to sell books or um, I'm, I'm here to to try to answer your questions and try to interact with your with your audience. And 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 uh, like I'm not here to pitch swag. So if someone wants to go find one of my books, they're easy to find. <laughs> That's great, Jay. Good job. Thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to me. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you to your audience and uh, all the best. God bless. Good luck. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self-Made, Juice Paid, An Asian Kid Who Became an International Drug-Smuggling Gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In self-made use paid learn how a British born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop, emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi Campbell? (laughs) Latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest 
places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.